live from the studios of 580 CFRA, downtown in the heart of the Byward Market. It's the Lowell Green Show. Filling in for Lowell Green, here's Nick Vandergrat. Yes, it is. Lowell's off today, so I get to sit in the big chair today. It's always a privilege and an honor to sit here. Uh, welcome to the Lowell Green Show, folks. In studio, I have... Um, a young, uh, well, <laughs> yes, the young lady, <laughs> Elizabeth Nixon. She wrote um, Ecofascist, Salt Spring Islands, um, British Columbia, which is, I've seen pictures of it. I've got a, a friend who, who is, wants to retire there, mm-hmm. and it's just an absolutely gorgeous part of the planet. It is beautiful. So I wanted to introduce her to you. I know you were here with Rick Gibbons yesterday, mm-hmm. and I went to your presentation last night out in Canada. Right. And my attitude is that the information that you shared with Rick Gibbons and with the audience last night is so vital uh, mm-hmm. that I wanted to give you another opportunity to kind of flesh out uh, mm-hmm. for the listening audience uh, what it is that you've written about, why you've written it, and that kind of thing. Because you make some pretty startling claims. I know. And that's, I think that's going to be the hardest part for people, even though, I, and I want you to get into, when I finally turn you loose here, <laughs> uh, I want you to get into who your fact checkers were. Because of all, everything you said last night, yeah. that was one of the most impressive. Yeah. Is the fact that you went you went to such great lengths to make sure everything in the book is 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 as accurate as humanly possible? Plus, I didn't want to be sued. <laughs> That's a pretty good motivation, I would think. All right. So, Elizabeth, uh, tell us a little bit about your your credentials. I know you were a longtime uh, investigative journalist with a bunch of major uh, magazines. Yeah, I I started um, in London. Uh, with Time magazine, and and they trained me on the job. I <clears throat> I had done a bit of freelance work for the Toronto Sun, and then I moved to London, and I was immediately hired at Time, and worked uh, back of the book in England. That sort of culture, everything but politics and war. Um, and then I went to uh, Life magazine, and I was European bureau chief, which gave me the all the territory in the world except the states. And that was amazing. That was that I met everybody, and um, and I grew up very, very fast. And in fact, by the end of it, I had a pretty much permanent headache because my brain had actually expanded, and my my skull had had to move outwards. (laughs) To get all the information. It was so incredible. I mean, I spent five hours with Margaret Thatcher, and um, two days, three a week with Nelson Mandela after he was released. And I met all the deposed, crowned heads of uh, the countries behind the Iron Curtain. Right. And um, every movie and pop star uh, it, around. So it was just an amazing time. And after that, uh, when I left England, I, I, I also wrote for all the English broadsheets, like the Telegraph, the Independent, the Sunday Times, and um, others. And, uh, and then when I came home, I started at the Globe and worked there for about three years as a columnist, and then moved to the Post. So you know your way around a typewriter. I know. <laughs> I have never used a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's scary? Because <laughs> I have. <laughs> anyway, so it's so obviously you have credentials when it comes to knowing how to ferret out a story and, and chase it down and, yeah. and do the fact-checking and well, all that sort of thing. The great thing about ti- about starting at Time, which was the huge luck of my life, was that I was trained by the best, and they put you through your paces. I mean, uh, there are five levels of editing at Time. Five levels? Five levels. So, And every time it's banged back to you. And a fact-checker, 
um, if they make three mistakes, they allow three mistakes through, they're fired. Really? Yeah. So it's, it was really, really, it's not like that anymore. But when I started in, in the late 80s, that's, it was still in place, this extraordinary um, Can system. Can you imagine the pressure of working as a fact checker? Yeah. <laughs> you want to make yeah. sure everything's right. Okay, so that's a little bit about your, your history and your credentials. Uh, if you can just kind of summarize your experience, because like I, I want to get to the meat of uh, why you're here, right. but I also want to know, uh, I w- want the listener to know that you come by this firsthand, that this isn't right. just a theory that you investigated. Right. This happened to you. Yeah. So go ahead and tell us just a little bit about what life was like on Salt Spring Island and how you got catapulted into writing this book in the first place. Okay, so when I was in London, I, I bought 30 acres of forest on Salt Spring. It's near my parents' retirement home, and all my family's on the West Coast. Um, and uh, I bought it with a friend, not a, 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 a love relationship, but, a you know, a pal. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it was 30 acres, we figured eventually we could build two houses on it and so on. And uh, when he was 39, he had a stroke. So uh, because he was English, he couldn't emigrate to Canada, and he needed the money out of it. By that time, I'd moved home because my father was dying and my mother needed help. And it was at the point where the Internet became at critical mass, and I could write for the Globe in the Post from Salt Spring Island. And um, so I decided I would subdivide off five acres and pay him and give him a bit of a, a... a break. Uh, and that's what really taught me what the environmental movement was all about. Before that, I'd been writing around it for the Globe and the Post, and I would take one issue and go into it and criticize it. And every time I made even the most mild of criticisms, I get enormous blowback. I mean, people, they tried to have me fired. I was threatened legally. They called me in the middle of the night. They'd drive into my driveway at 4 a.m. and shine headlights into my house. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, I was living alone with two small dogs on 30 acres. Nothing it was like not, intimidating. It was not fun. And uh, um, so when, when I decided to subdivide, I had to go up against this outfit called the Islands Trust. Now, the trust is one of the first of its kind, but it has been duplicated all over the world, and it's in in Ontario. Uh, California Coastal Commission is modeled on it, the Cape Cod Commission. Every environmental land trust uses the same mechanisms. So uh, what happened was that I actually, because of the process was so expensive, I had to sell my old house with a 100-mile uh, view right. and build another one. Um, it took me 22 months. It cost $160,000. I didn't work during it. All I did was lobby and go to meetings. This on an island of 10,000 people. I had five lawyers, four um, engineers, three consultants, and um, I spent most of the time terrified. <laughs> and no partridge in a pear tree? <laughs> <laughs> I have, well, I had one consultant who, to whom I paid $110 an hour who basically held my hand. And drew the process map and said, "You're at this, so you know you've got to go and do this." And um, when I did get through, the head of the trust said I was the first in a thousand such applications that had been allowed. So, if if it hadn't gone through, I would have been bankrupted, right? Yeah. Uh, Nine hundred ninety-nine other people had their finances severely affected by their failure, and what I was doing was legal. It was within the official community plan. 
It should have been a really straightforward, quick thing, but the environmental movement spent that 22 months trying to stop me. Now, it isn't like you're a redneck draining oil out of your 47 Chevy pickup truck in the driveway, you know, with more dogs and cats and people know what to do with. Yeah. Uh, you live the lifestyle. You're, you you walk the walk and talk the talk. I mean, you've got things on your property you put in because you yeah. think there's things within the environmental movement that are good things do. to do on a, on a personal level. I, I, I do, and I still do. I covenanted half my forest, so it's in a perpetual no-touch covenant. I have a salmon enhancement project at the intersection of my creeks right. uh, put in by the Department of Fisheries. Thank you very much. <laughs> and um, I built a, a greenhouse. I used geothermal heat, and it's got green roofs, and it's um, anyway, it's carbon neutral, and there are all kinds of green refinements. It's a very beautiful. But none of that seemed to matter. Well, you know, that's one of the reasons that they put me through is that I just submitted to everything. Oh. But it wasn't that I did disagreed with it. I did agree with it. Yeah. You know, I I did. The problem with it was is, is that. You know, you have to be very rich to afford it. Okay. And only because I could sell my old house at the top of a once-in-a-lifetime property market right. was I able to get through this un- unscathed and still, you know, you know, able to pay my bills. Okay. With that said, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with Elizabeth Nixon, and we'll get into the meat of this. So what? Okay. What? She, what? Now that we know what launched it, we'll talk about what she found out when we get back here on the Low Green Show. Five two one eight two five five. We'll be right back with more. Now back to the Low Green Show on 580 CFRA. Here's Nick Vandergrad. Okay, thanks for staying with us, folks. Uh, if you have any questions for Elizabeth, we'll take them at 521-8255, star 580, the Bell Mobility System, 1-800-580-2372. And you can also ask at nick at night at cfra.com. Uh, although I have a feeling that we'll be getting it, that'll be a little bit later in the show as people begin to understand what it is right. that we're talking about. So, okay, you, you've been through the Salt Spring Islands torture test. Right. You yeah. actually win. You survive the gauntlet. Yeah. What happens now? How did you, when did you decide, I need to write, catalog this, I need to, to uh, put this in, into writing and try to get the message out? Well, I, I, all the way through it, I knew that what was happening was wrong. It just felt wrong. It, 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 it just it was wrong. And I started to read around about wh- who was funding these people, um, where were these ideas coming from? Because this was a rural community and a, and a quite a simple one. And the ideas were so complex that I started to look around and see that it was actually happening in every other pretty place in North America. If it was beautiful, if there was natural features, this was in place. And where did it come from? <clears throat> and, and what was it doing? So once I got it finished, what I, these were the questions I asked. What's happening to rural people? What's happening to the resources? What's happening to water? And what's happening to the rural economy? And I got into my car, and I, I have to preface this by saying that most of my research was in America because they ha- it's the money and the ideas basically came from there. I mean, we have our David Suzuki, who is a major contributor to this disaster, and it is a disaster. Um, but most of the money came from patrician foundations on the East Coast that had been captured by the left and had been repurposed to put in place a kind of an, an entirely new system of land management that is meant to pull all land into uh, pu- the public sphere and it's managed by bureaucrats. 
So what? So when I started driving, um, I would go into a small town and I'd go to the mayor's office and I'd walk in and I'd say, this is who I am, what's happening here? And they would invariably look at me and say, we are dying. And so that that was that was the story and 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 you know the fact that rural areas are dying is not so unusual right yeah and i think many of us if we really did think that biodiversity collapse was happening and all all these scary things were happening we kind of accept it so but but the thing that i really discovered that shocked me was that um the, the resource was dying. So once the western forest had been placed under ecosystem management by the movement, in 93, when they shut the forest down for the spotted owl, it was about 120 million acres of uh, forest. By 2013, we could audit the results because that forest grows faster, four times faster than any other temperate forest. So it was a perfect case study. Right. And does this stuff work? And as it turns out, it is disastrous. The systems of nature management that they've put in place in Ontario and all the way across the country, in every resource, it doesn't matter whether it's mining, water, forest, ranching, farming, is invariably, when followed to its natural end, destructive of the resource. And of course, the human community is dying too. I mean, these we, we discovered um, that 40 million Americans have been driven out of the country by the environmental movement since 1980. And these were once family wage jobs so that you have healthy communities, you have wealthy communities. They're not like, you know, upper middle class Rosedale communities, but they're healthy, strong farming, ranching, forestry communities. If you have a smart kid, he can go to college. You can fund your retirement. You can pay your medical bills. Now that's all gone. All these people are marginal. Okay, so that's a, just a small thing, and we could go on for hours about the stuff that's in your book uh, about the, the physical damage that's being done, like the, um, uh, the forests and how it's affecting the animals that live within it and how it's affecting migration patterns because the downfall is so thick the animals can't get through it anymore. Right. Um, all those things. So in one hand, it seems like the more we try to protect it, the more harm we do. But what I'm curious about is, all right, if that's what's happening, the question then is, Who's doing it? Right. Well, I mean, there are 26,500 environmental organizations in the states. How many? 26,500. And that was as of 2005. There's more now. And those are the people that are doing this. They are the innocent, naive um, housewives right up to master strategic planning at the very top of the culture. So, and they field $9 billion a year. That's, well, that's the next question. So what kind of money are we talking we're about? We're talking about $9.7 $9. a year. Now, you made an interesting comment in your book, and I've only read about the first two or three chapters, and I'm already going, oh, my God, if this is the first <laughs> three chapters, I shudder to think what the rest of it's like. But you made a comment about Microsoft, how when they launched Windows 7, oh, they spent yes. $400 million launching it. Yeah. And yet, and, and you know, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And I remember that ad being everywhere. Yeah, but the the let's call it the the eco groups, the ENGOs as you call them, mm. spend that a month. Yes, and have for the last twenty years. So of course we're all snowed. How could we not be? Okay, and I think it's also fair to say that, it, or maybe let me rephrase that. In your experience, 
when you run into the municipal level, because that's where this is doing the most damage, Yes. Uh, when you explain this to counselors, to Reeves, wardens, uh, mayors, people like that, what do they say? Do they, are they aware of the kind of things they're implementing when I, they put in sustainability and all that sort of thing? I think they think they're doing a good thing. I, I think they many of them just have drunk the Kool-Aid and believe in it. And, of course, the people that come into towns, and I got a great uh, email from someone in Thunder Bay who just read my book, and she said, I opened the newspaper, and the sustainability people were in town, and they rebranded, were called the Wilderness Edge or some sort of, they rebranded Thunder Bay, right. and they want $6 million to redo our plans, because that's what they're after. They're after your municipal funds. They come in, and they just basically take your budget, and they get more money from the provincial or state capital, and they reconfigure all your land use plans you they tell you this has to be pristine this wall they re, redo it and it's all ecosystem management which all right. you talk about in your book this idea about a, a balance in nature how everybody wants to achieve that perfect balance right. wherever the whole planet sits there and goes oh <laughs> and there's this peaceful balance right <laughs> Is that actually possible? No, no. There's no such thing as balance in nature. Balance—that—that's uh, the, the 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 biggest myth. Um, nature is chaotic. It's always always changing. And um, there, the two schools uh, of um, of uh, nature management or uh, conservation biology. One of them says you can you can manage it by lowly patches, and that's that's the phrase lowly patches. So one field can be completely different from the next field. Even in my property, which is bisected by a creek, um, one side of it is a different kind of geology than the upper level that I'm right. on. This is in within six acres. Right. So it, both of them have to be managed entirely differently. You cannot come down and put this, this glass bell that's divided up. It just doesn't work. It fails. So and it, Theory in the laboratory doesn't work yeah. in the field. Yeah, the only place an ecosystem has ever been found is on a desktop. All right. Uh, I got about 45 seconds left before I have to take a break. Talk about who your fact checkers were. I want to okay. get to that. I want people to understand what they're reading is accurate and why. Okay, so since I'm a mainstream journalist, I was able to get a really good uh, agent in New York, and he found me the best publisher I could possibly find at HarperCollins. Um, but I had Adam Bellow, who Saul Bellow's son, was my editor, a brilliant writer himself and a very clear thinker and um, powerful enough in the organization to be able to give me a lawyer and uh, an independent fact checker and five other editors. And we went through every fact in that book and checked it to the sixth level. And the, and the lawyer was so worked up about it because I make a lot of accusations against <laughs> very powerful people. <laughs> And the poor guy, he was, you know, he's just, you know, broken by the whole thing. But <laughs> finally, he let me through. And, and yeah. Okay, I have to stop you there because I do have to take that break. We'll talk more with Elizabeth Dixon right after this. 521-8255 is the Lowell Green Show on CFRA. We'll be right back. Now back to the Lowell Green Show on 580 CFRA. Staying with us, folks. Elizabeth Nixon is my guest. She wrote the book Eco-Fascists. Uh, I didn't write down the rest of the title. How conservative? How, how radical conservationists are destroying our natural heritage. Thank you. See, that was I should have done that. I got the title. I got the <laughs> the most important part of it. Now, I want to go back to some of the damage that's been done for a moment yeah. because 
everybody's worried about um, global warming and carbon dioxide gas in the atmosphere. I think that that thing is dying, but for that that fear of that is dying. There's yeah. a story out of, with Charles Adler talking about what's going on in Europe today in the, in the paper. Yeah. But at the same time, one of the things you talk about that is a very real threat mm-hmm. is a canopy fire that would yeah. sweep basically up the central and west coast of, of North America. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, that... Uh, the, the environmental movement sells the idea of a fire as a good thing, um, but the fires that they're talking about are the are the lightning caused fires of the uh, early twenties and thirties before we industrialized the forest. So now what they do, um, I'm going to talk about the western forests because I know that really really well. Okay. Uh, it's a fast growing forest. It grows four times as fast as any other forest. So we know. Uh, what happens when the environmental movement takes over a resource the way they have with that forest. Where there were once 60 to 80 healthy trees in an acre, there are now 500. They're spindly, their immune systems are compromised, their roots are rotten, they're vulnerable to pests, they're vulnerable to disease, they're most vulnerable to fire. So what happens is that you'll get a lightning strike, um, because there's been no clearance, no cl- brush clearing, no thinning, no nothing, people are not allowed in the forest. It's off limits. If you try to go in and cut a, blo- cut a block, they'll take you to court. If you win, they'll take you back. So um, people don't even try anymore. And what's happened is that the trees are there. It's like a tinderbox. So one lightning strike can just set off. So the Forest Service itself believes that between 90 million and 200 million acres are at risk of a once-in-a-millennium fire that will just extirpate every species. It will kill the fish. It will kill the creeks. It will scarify the seeds in the soil, and it will kill the dirt. That's how bad that fire will be because of the management of the forest by the environmental movement. Now, it's funny you mention this because in the last few years, we've seen more and more uh, forest fires of intense nature yeah. uh, in, the West, in the West, not only in the United States, but in Canada as well. We also yeah. have them up north here in Ontario and Quebec yeah. because of the size of the boreal forest. Yeah. But I think what you're talking about is a whole new scale. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing is that uh, clear cuts would mimic the old type of fires that the Indians used to set. Right. And they would cl- have these clear... Um, patches. Natural so, breaks. Yeah, and you could fight a fire with that, and you could stop a fire with that. But by decommissioning all these forest roads, you can't get up into the forest to fight it now. Yes, so no, you, can, you can drop fire retardant from helicopters, but it, that doesn't even come close to slowing it down. Well, the, tree, the fire's just going right underneath it. Yeah. So you've got a real problem there. What about as, as far as um, when you look at some of the other things, the grasslands you talk about? Yeah. I mean, there used to be millions of buffalo yeah. roaming the grasslands. Yeah. Well, we all know what happened to the buffalo. Right. We replaced them with cattle. Right. There were millions of cattle doing the same job the buffalo did. It's mm-hmm. from the perspective of the grasslands. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. It hasn't had the same kind of scientific... We know what's going on in the Pacific Northwest forest because the Forest Service has been studying it and hiding, putting these studies away, go into Washington, pull them out, and the evidence is clear. The grasslands, um, they've 
cleared uh, millions of cattle off the grassland. So when I drove through central U.S., central, central western U.S., it was deserted. It was one broken downtown after another. It was, it was like the 30s. It was that desperate. Um, and all these fields were absolutely clear. No cattle. All the barns were falling down. The fences were falling down. Well, that was done by the environmental movement. And what's happening to that grassland now is that it's turning to desert. There's too much dirt between all the plants. The ranchers used to be able to, um, they, they brought up water, they cleared invasive species, they kept their fences together, and the cattle would break up the sod and bring nitrogen and oxygen into the soil, and that would create healthy grass. Right. So that, so yeah, we think that, millions of acres are turning to desert. And so you add that with a massive forest fire. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about the human cost, how many lives would be yeah. lost in a, in a canopy fire yeah. of that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, look at the fires a few years ago in California that swept through uh, subdivisions, just turned them to ash. Now, I don't remember anybody dying in that, but it's not doesn't take much imagination to see a city like, let's say, Spokane, Washington. Uh, well, actually, maybe not. Uh, but something in the middle, uh, yeah. Take the Nebraskas or something like that. You've got uh, in in Idaho or in in uh, Alberta, mm-hmm. uh, these cities that are nestled into the in, into the sides of the mountains where these forests are, right. could be just eviscerated right off the planet. Well, you know the movement thinks that these people shouldn't be living out there, and so it's okay that they get burned out because they want to bring everybody into the cities. Um, and I think exactly the opposite. I think if people want to live in the country, it's a good thing because they can steward their land, they can take care of it. And it is an axiomatic thing that as people need land, and all of this is caused by all these people, these people in the city surrounded by concrete, dreaming of the country. And so they give money to the environmental movement because it's a sort of a proxy um, thing that says, oh, well, I can be among fields. I can think of, the, of nature as pristine. Well, you know, damn it, go out and buy five acres and build yourself a house and live in nature because you can do that, except for the environmental movement has made it impossible. Yeah. I, I mean, really. Well, that used to be what was called the American dream. Yeah, and I know. they've certainly put the torch to that. Yeah. Okay, let's. I want to spend a few moments talking about um, when we have situations like this arise. Mm-hmm. This we talked about. Where does this come from? Now, from what I've been gathering, it sounds like something comes right off the pages of Agenda Twenty One. Yeah, is there a link there? Of course, um, Agenda Twenty One is a real thing, and it's a plan. And and I don't know. I spent most of my time in the sort of media elites. And everybody in those elites generally thought that international socialism was the end result of all our civilization. It was an accepted fact. I think Agenda 21 and the climate change nonsense is the vehicle by which they want to institute this kind of totally managed culture that everybody has lives within a thousand rules and then we can achieve social equity and human rights and so on. And it's very well advanced. I mean, the, the mapping that, they, that comes out of Agenda 20 is the U.S. Senate voted 95 to 0 to kill it. But everywhere I went in the state said that biodiversity map is in place and that people have been cleared out of the country deliberately, 40 million people. When, that, when my book arrived in Washington, D.C., there was a great review um, by one of Stephen Harper's people who writes for the Washington Times. And uh, the National Center for Public Policy Analysis got the book and read it. And this is kind of their territory. 
and they kind of freaked out. So they spoke over to the um, National Agricultural Statistical Service of the USDA and said, fact check this. And they came back and said, I'd actually underestimated the number of people that have been cleared from rural America by environmental regulations. That's incredible. 40 million people. Underestimated. Underestimated. And they gave me the new figures. It was just an update. You know? Okay, so for the average person who goes to a website, let's say City of Ottawa website, City of Pembroke website, you pick the website of the city that you, whatever city you want, and they see words like sustainability. Yeah. Or um, we have a phrase they've used and coined here, I don't coined, but are using now smart or oh. uh, smart streets, or what is it? Smart growth. Smart growth, yeah, but there's a term they use for a complete street. And that means bike lanes, that means encroachment, oh, that know. means traffic. Oh, yeah. You know, they're, they're trying to set up this anti-car um, uh, attitude and, and atmosphere yeah. where driving a car becomes such a hassle that most people will give it up and take on public exactly. transit. Are these the same kind of buzzwords we see in, in environmental documentation in Agenda 21 and so on? Yeah, it's the urban version of what's happened to rural people. And it, it is meant to um, get you into smaller houses and onto bikes and into transit. There, there's this wonderful story out of BC that w- we have a carbon tax, right? So our gas has is five cents more a liter. Um, and the Pacific Carbon Trust, uh, which organizes this, um, managed last year to take our carbon taxes from hospitals and schools and people's gas and give it to the two two of the richest organizations in Canada in Canada in Canada Gas and the Nature Conservancy of Canada got carbon taxes. What are they going to do with it? <laughs> well, the Nature Conservancy was running a sustainable forestry um, outfit in 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 the in the forests of BC, and in Canada had developed a, a method of um, pumping um, uh, carbon underground. But both organizations were doing what they were doing anyway. But they also got uh, several hundred or tens of millions of dollars each, which was really bad. But then, then this is the best part. <laughs> this is the best part. Um, the Pacific Carbon Trust puts out a graph showing that people were traveling less and buying less gas after the Pacific Carbon Trust had added five cents a liter. But, in fact, somebody else went into the statistics and realized that everybody was going to the States to buy gas. And the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> the best laid plans, eh? Yeah, they weren't driving less. They were actually driving more because they wanted, and it is, it's a, it's a third less expensive. If in That's the, huge. Yeah. So, in order to try to make everybody see the planet their way, they just drove, they just drove customers across the border yeah. and make BC com- yeah. companies suffer. Yeah. And they're not getting revenue they're supposed to. It's like cross-border shopping here. Yeah, I know. It's everything they try fails, well, which is the, what's so satisfying about it and keeps me going. All right. With that, we have to take a break. We'll be back with the next segment right after this on The Lowell Green Show, 521-8255. It's The Lowell Green with Elizabeth Nixon in the studio. We'll be right back with more after this. Now back to The Lowell Green Show on 580 CFRA. Here's Nick Vandergrat. Okay. Uh, thanks for staying with us, folks. We've got the last segment with 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 Elizabeth uh, coming up. I want to ask you, Elizabeth, um, this kind of policy we see in the Green Energy Act here in Ontario. We talked about Europe a little bit earlier. What kind of ramifications is this having for the average person? Well, I I'm, I would hope that at some point some journalist in Ontario is going to go looking for this data. But in Europe, where they've mandated green energy. 
And as a result, um, energy prices have gone up almost a third in some countries. Uh, they found in, in the UK that in Christmas of 2010, half a million pensioners spent that Christmas in bed because they couldn't afford to heat their homes. And in Germany, uh, 800, in wealthy Germany, 800,000 people are fuel poor. They're, they, they live in cold because of alternative energy mandates. So this, there's no real reason to believe that a rising price of energy here in Ontario would not have the same effect. Uh, you pay 23 cents per kilowatt hour. We pay 8 cents, and you've got real cold here in, B in B.C. You know, you can light a wood fire and kind of get through the winter. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's got to be a lot of real suffering out there. Okay. Um, giving people this information is one thing. But let's talk about what they can do with it. Right. Because you, you gave that presentation to the Legion last night and was very, very informative. But there's a lot of people out there who might have sat through that and said, okay, so what do I do now? I mean, it's fine to know all this stuff, but unless you can put it to work, what do you do? Yeah, well, you have to get up on your hind legs and protest, I'm afraid. <laughs> the only way to do it is to stand up and say, no, what uh, I, I'm doing with the uh, Frontier Center for Public Policy, which is headquartered in Winnipeg, Regina, and Calgary, a Canadian version of the book. And Ontario is the big section because we think that What's happened to Ontarians has international implications. It's so bad what they've done here with the Species at Risk Act and all and all the all the m many millions of bureaucratic incursions on people's property rights and their their personal rights. I mean, some of the stories I'm hearing is are, they are appalling. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you we're going to break it down, do the case studies make the intellectual argument and give you the tools of how to fight, where to fight on every level, the legislation, the rules, how to get bureaucrats to back off. And, um, and yeah, and we just, we all have to stand up. I'm a, from a very old Canadian family. Um, and my, when my father retired, he moved out west, uh, and he and his uncle ran one thing after another, the Western Institute for the Deaf, Victorian Order of Nurses, Meals on Wheels, the Red Cross. And when they weren't doing that, they had toolboxes and berets on their head, and they went around to all the old ladies in the neighborhood to help fix things. They would no more have ceded their townships and counties and municipalities to bureaucrats and fly unaided to the moon. And in one generation, we've lost that. We've lost that sense of responsibility for our, for our own rights as well as that of our neighbors, and we've just got to stand up. Now, in the States, because this is further along from yeah. the point of view of moving people off the land, at least I hope it is, Not, and, and that's a terrible thing to say, <laughs> I, 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 but I mean from a Canadian perspective, I hope. let's put it this way, I hope it's not that bad here in Canada. I'm not trying to wish yeah, any so, ill too. on our American cousins. But is there any sense of people actually reaching that point of frustration where they're now willing to, because Canadians are trained from birth to be polite. Yeah. When the lights come on behind you, you don't argue with the officer, you pull over, yes sir, no sir, you do your, you get your ticket, you go on. You, you know, when you, when some, you hold the, you have respect for your elders, you're just trained to be a little bit submissive and polite. Yeah. And this goes against that grain to stand up and protest. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that my father uh, felt that he was a, he was polite 
But, you know, he if he thought something was wrong, he would stand up and say, this mm. is wrong and it must stop. And all of his friends did. Um, but now I think the upper middle class who have abrogated their responsibility to their communities now spend their lives at golf clubs and tennis clubs and at cruises and swanning around the world. And, and that is simply wrong. It, they should not do that. They should be in their communities, making them better, and fixing this. Because they have the education, and they've got the money. Well, I don't think there's any problem going on cruises or golf, but if that's your no, whole life. And you, you're it is your whole your, life. Well, that's what I was going to say. If you're ignoring your community. Yeah. You know, because all of us do have a certain civic responsibility. Yes. So I guess what I hear you saying is people need to accept that responsibility yes. and act on it. Yeah. And now... <laughs> yeah, well, now that's it. Speaking of now, uh, what is let ne- what is next on the agenda? Like, uh, what's your next whistle stop? Where are you off to now? I I, I get to spend uh, time in the Laurentians with my oldest girlfriend and her husband. <laughs> oh, that's going to be a gorgeous trip. All right, any more whistle stops uh, promoting the book and and uh, talking about the uh, issues between here and Salt Spring Islands for you? Or are you um, heading home? Well, I yeah, I'm going going home, and I I have a talking on one of the islands, and then I'm going down to uh, address the Conservative Forum in Silicon Valley on September 3rd. (laughs) (laughs) In the state of California, no less. That'll be an interesting conversation, (laughs) I can just imagine. So any ideas when, uh, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but just have you um, been given any kind of timeline for when the Canadian version of this book will be available? Well, um, Frontier has given me... such a wonderful gift in, in these two great researchers. One of them is from Ontario and the other from BC. And I have a statistician working f- with me who lives on Salt Spring. And it, as fast as we can possibly do it. Okay, so it, it's not going to be a 10-year project. <laughs> no, no, no. It'll be a little too late by then. No, we're going we're gonna to do something fast. We have to. Well, there's so many, there's so many different things, and I guess what the whole point of what I've been trying to drive, you know, between us, drive home today, is that civic responsibility is something we need to get back to, yeah. and that this kind of agenda is done at the lowest level. This is the yes. kind of thing, like the analogy I like to use uh, as a former truck driver is if you can drive 3,000 miles across the country, but you can't back the last 50 feet into the dock, you're defeated. Yeah. You know, you might as well have stayed home. So yeah. whether it's Agenda 21 or... Uh, any of these um, biodiversity zones or any of the policies that make these things possible uh, when they're implemented at the municipal level, if we can stop them there, yeah. the rest of it doesn't matter because they can't get it done. Yeah, and, and it, it is surprising how fast these local bureaucrats will back down if you stand up and fight them. Well, they're not expecting and it, it. And it's really fun, right? <laughs> you know, I have a feeling you'd be a, a lot of fun to watch at a meeting when you're taking on a, a bureaucrat about the way things are done. <laughs> I'm getting good at it. I'll bet you are. All right. Well, that uh, that is an hour. Okay. Thank well, you very much for giving us that extra hour. We really appreciate it because this is an issue that isn't going away anytime no. soon. And unfortunately, until we actually, you know, stand up on our hind legs and, and uh, go after these guys, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Elizabeth, good luck in the future. Thank and you so please much. drop in and see us again. I would love to. All right.